You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of uh, the book Ancient Myths and the New Isis Mystery by Rudolf Steiner, Eight Lectures. This is Lecture 3, given on January 6th, 1918. In these lectures, we have endeavored to understand some aspects of the course of human evolution. We have sought to trace the deeper foundations of such myths as the Osiris-Isis myth. We have further sought to find our way again from a certain aspect into the world of the Greek gods. We have touched lightly upon the inner meaning of concepts which perhaps uh, do not come to clear expression, but which underlie the poetic myths of Egypt and Greece, and have sought to study, or at any rate to suggest, the connection between the basis of these myths and the Old Testament doctrines. These Old Testament doctrines have sprung from a different spirit from that of the mythology of the Egyptians and the Greeks. We have seen that the Egyptian and Greek mythologies, in their very structure, are derived from certain ancient experiences of humankind. They are based on a certain consciousness that humanity once possessed, atavistic clairvoyance. Through atavistic clairvoyance, human beings had stood in the same inner relation to the spirit pervading nature as later human beings stood, between birth and death, to the objects of sensory perception. Read that sentence again. Through atavistic clairvoyance, human beings stood in the same inner relation to the spirit pervading nature as later human beings stood, between birth and death, to the objects of sensory perception. We have seen that that for this old atavistic knowledge, the all-encompassing world conception, which was an inner experience was more significant than the knowledge based on mere sensory perception of the transitional humanity to which we still belong. All that had arisen as pictures in the Egyptian and the Greek mythology, better described as visions of the gods, is to be found in the Old Testament as actual doctrine, with morality the keynote. In fact, the day before yesterday, As I spoke of the important difference between the mythology of Egypt and Greece and the Old Testament, I told you that the divine spiritual beings who stand at the beginning of the Old Testament, the Elohim, Yahweh, can only be thought of as together creating humankind. We can only think of them as producing through their deeds what we call earthly humanity. In fact, the whole evolution of earthly humanity is accomplished only as a consequence of the fundamental deed of the Elohim, or of Yahweh. I pointed out that this is not the case in Egyptian or Greek mythology. There, people looked back into the distant past and said to themselves, The gods Osiris, Isis, Zeus, Apollo, Mars, Pallas, who are now connected with the guidance of human destiny, have arisen from other generations of gods, but human beings were already in existence. The Egyptian and the Greek mythologies traced the human being back to earlier times when those gods recognized in the Egyptians of the Greeks' own time were not yet creating, 
and ruling. Thus human beings in Egypt and Greece ascribed to themselves an antiquity greater than that of the gods then in power. This is so fundamental and significant a difference that one must bear it well in mind. In the course of these studies we shall see that this conception points to an infinitely important and significant fact. In the Old Testament doctrine, the gods who were revered were at the same time the gods who created the human race. Only because the Old Testament doctrine makes the divine the creator of humanity was it possible for the Old Testament doctrine to insert at the same time the moral element, moral impulse into the divine order and hence into the whole ordering of humankind, into providence as one would call it now. This is important for an understanding of the current world conception. For the world concepts of our time are not derived in any very definite way from a uniform source. They have very different origins. We have many beliefs which we as modern human beings profess to be directly rooted in Greek ideas. We also bear much within us, especially the immediate present bears much in it, that points back to the Old Testament. The human quest, the quest of many human beings, must first involve finding one's way among these often contradictory concepts and ideas and proceeding through the impulse started by the mystery of Golgotha. This all lies ahead of us still, and we will have to flesh it out in the time left to us to be together. It is especially important that we lay one thing as a foundation. I have already referred to it yesterday. We have often mentioned that we are living since the 15th century in the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, and in a certain sense, I said, certain impulses of the third post-Atlantean epoch, the Egypto-Chaldean, must reappear in the fifth, just as in the sixth post-Atlantean epoch certain impulses of the second, the Zarathustra, the old Persian epoch, will light up. And as in the last post-Atlantean epoch, the seventh, certain impulses of the original Indian epoch will light up again. That is a law in the course of human evolution, and it points in a significant manner to the essential features of humanity's spiritual task, until the new catastrophe that is to come, such as a natural cataclysm. Now we have seen in part what immense depth of human consciousness in ancient times is expressed in the fact that these ancient ages evolved the Osiris myth. We have seen that this early age meant to say a perception once lived among humans through which they could still directly experience the spiritual in their natural surroundings by way of atavistic imaginations. That was the age in which Osiris ruled. But the new perceptions, the Typhon perceptions, those perceptions that have evolved alphabetical writing from picture writing, those perceptions that have formed the individually sounding languages from the primeval sacred language which humans used to speak in common have killed what lived in humanity as the Osiris impulse. So ever since then, Osiris is a being that stands beside human beings only when they are between death and a new birth. We followed the Osiris-Isis legend in its essentials, saw how Osiris was regarded as a primeval ruler of Egypt who brought to the Egyptians the most important of their arts, who ruled in Egypt through long ages, 
who also traveled from Egypt into other lands, and brought them, not by the sword but by persuasion, the benefits of the arts taught in Egypt. While Osiris was away traveling, his wicked brother Typhon introduced innovations into his own land of Egypt, and despite the watchfulness of his consort, Isis, when Osiris returned he was slain by Typhon. Then Isis sought everywhere for Osiris. Some young boys, the legend says, told her that the coffin had been carried away by the sea. She discovered it in Byblos, in Phoenicia, and brought it back to Egypt. Typhon had cut up the corpse into fourteen pieces. Isis collected the pieces with the use of spices, and by other means she was able to give each piece the appearance of Osiris again. She then induced the priests to accept a third of the land from her. In exchange for this they should keep the grave of Osiris secret and institute the cult of Osiris, that is to say a memorial service of the ancient Osiris time, to keep in memory that a different perception had once existed in humanity. This remembrance was henceforward to be preserved, and all sorts of secrets surrounded it. The time in which Typhon had slain Osiris was indicated as the time in November when the sun sets in the seventeenth degree of Scorpio, and opposed to it in Taurus the full moon appears in the Pleiades. It is further related that Osiris once more betook himself from the underworld, where he rules over the dead and judges them, to the upper world, in order to instruct his son Horus, whom he had engendered by Isis. Then Isis let herself be induced to free Typhon, whom she had held imprisoned. Horus, instructed by Osiris, grew so angry at this that he quarreled with Isis his mother and seized the crown from her. Then it is related that either he himself or in other versions Hermes set cow horns upon her head in place of the crown, and since then she has been portrayed with these. Now in ancient Egyptian myths you see Isis standing at Osiris's side, and the way the old Egyptians felt about her, she was not only a mysterious deity, a mysterious spirit being who stood in inner relation with the ordering of the world, but she could be said to be the epitome of all the deepest thoughts the Egyptians were able to form about the archetypal forces working in nature and in the human being. When the Egyptians looked up to the great mysteries in their surroundings, they looked up to Isis, whose statue in the temple of Sais has become famous. Beneath this statue stood the well-known inscription meant to express the being of Isis, quote, I am the All, I am the Past, the Present, and the Future. No mortal has yet lifted my veil. Unquote. That was a central thought, especially in the later period of Egyptian civilization. And gazing at the mysteries of Isis, one remembered the other mysteries of the ancient Osiris age. Pious Egyptians trembled at the sight of Isis when they let the words work upon them, I am the all, I am the past, the present, and the future. No mortal has yet lifted my veil. And when these words worked upon them, the Egyptians remembered at the same time that Isis had once been united with Osiris, when Osiris still wandered upon earth. The uninformed looked upon this as a legend, but in the mysteries the priests explained that the ancient Osiris time was a time in which the old clairvoyance united human beings with the spirit of nature all about them. The Legend of the New Isis 
To understand the Osiris Isis myth in the present day, we must view it with the sensations and feelings that were in the soul, in the heart of the Egyptian. We have done so by selecting a few characteristic features. And these characteristic features should bring before our soul's gaze the resonances which once sounded over from ancient times into newer times. While their meaning was lost through the mystery of Golgotha, they must be clarified again today, precisely for the better understanding of the mystery of Golgotha. Before our soul's gaze must stand all the mystery that at first could be divined only when the Egyptian felt the words that described Isis, I am the all, I am the past, the present, and the future. No mortal has yet lifted my veil. We will now contrast this Osiris-Isis myth with another Osiris-Isis myth, quite another one. And in the relation of this other Osiris-Isis myth, I must count upon your freedom from prejudice, your impartiality in the highest degree, in order that you do not misunderstand it. This other Osiris-Isis myth is in no way born out of foolish arrogance. It is born in humility. It is also of such a nature that perhaps it can only be related today in a most imperfect way. But I will try to characterize its features in a few words. First of all, it is up to each person, though that can only be provisionally, to decide when to relate this Osiris-Isis myth. I can relate it today only approximately, superficially, even banally. But as I said, I will try to relate it disregarding as much as possible any prejudices and calling upon your unbiased understanding. This other Osiris-Isis myth then has somewhat, I say, somewhat the following contents. It was in the age of scientific profundity, in the midst of the land of the Philistines, upon a hill in spiritual seclusion, was erected a building which was considered to be remarkable in the land of Philistirium. I should just like to say that the future commentator adds a note here that by the land of Philistirium not merely the very nearest environment is meant. If one wanted to use the language of Goethe, one could say that the building represented an open secret, for the building was closed to no one. It was open to all and in fact everyone could see it at convenient times. By far the greater number of people saw nothing at all. Far the greater number of people saw neither what was built nor what it represented. Far the greater number of people stood before an open secret, a completely open secret. A statue was intended to be the central point of the building. This statue represented a group of beings, the representative of the human being and a luciferic and an aramonic figure. People looked at the statue, and this being the age of scientific profundity in the land of the Philistines, did not know that the statue, in fact, was only the veil for an invisible statue. But the invisible statue itself remained unnoticed by people, for it was the new Isis, the Isis of a new age. Some few persons of the land of scientific profundity had once heard of this remarkable connection between what was visible and what in the shape of Isis was concealed behind the visible thing. And then in their profound allegorical, symbolical manner of speech, they asserted that this combination of the human figure with Lucifer and Araman signified Isis. With this word, quote-unquote, signified, however, they not only ruined the artistic intention from which the whole thing was supposed to proceed, 
for an artistic creation does not merely signify something but is something, but they completely misunderstood all that underlay it. For the point was not in the least that the figures signified something, but that they already were what they appeared to be. And behind the figures was not an abstraction of the new Isis, but an actual, real, new Isis. The figures signified nothing at all, but they were in fact, in themselves, that which they made themselves out to be. But they possessed the peculiarity that behind them there was the real being, the new Isis. Some few who, in special circumstances, in special moments, had nevertheless seen this new Isis, found that she was asleep. And so one can say, the real underlying statue concealed behind the external statue is the sleeping new Isis, a sleeping figure, visible but seen only by a few. Some of them, at very special moments, turned to the inscription, which is in plain view, but which also has been read by only a few people, at the spot where the statue stands in readiness. And yet the inscription stands clearly there, just as clearly as the inscription once stood on the veiled form at Sais. And indeed this is what the inscription says, I am the human being, I am the past, the present and the future. Every mortal should lift my veil. One day another figure approached, the sleeping figure of the new Isis, and then came Excuse, let me read that again. One day another figure approached the sleeping figure of the new Isis and then came back again and again, somewhat like a visitor. And the sleeping Isis considered this visitor her special benefactor and loved him. And one day she believed in a particular illusion, just as the visitor believed one day in a particular illusion. The new Isis had an offspring, and she considered the visitor whom she looked on as her benefactor to be the father. He regarded himself as the father, but he was not. The visiting spirit, who was none other than the new Typhon, believed that he could acquire a special increase of his power in the world if he took possession of this new Isis. So the new Isis had an offspring, but she did not know its nature. She knew nothing of the being of this new offspring. And she moved it about, she dragged it far off into other lands because she believed that she must do so. She trailed the new offspring about, and after she had trailed and dragged it through various regions of the world, it fell to pieces, into fourteen parts, through the very power of the world. Thus the new Isis had carried her offspring into the world, and the world had dismembered it into fourteen pieces. When the visitor, the new Typhon, became aware of the fact, he gathered together the fourteen pieces, and with all the knowledge of natural scientific profundity, he made a being again, a single whole, out of the fourteen pieces. But this being obeyed only mechanical laws, the laws of the machine. Thus a being had arisen with all the appearance of life, but obeying the laws of the machine. And since this being had arisen out of fourteen pieces, it could reproduce itself again, fourteenfold, and Typhon could give a reflection of his own being to each piece, so that each of the fourteen offspring of the new Isis had a countenance that resembled the new Typhon. And Isis had to follow all this strange affair, half divining it, half divining she could see the whole miraculous change that had come over her offspring. She knew that she herself had dragged it about, that she herself had brought it all that had brought all this to pass. 
But there came a day when she could receive it again in its true, its genuine form from a group of spirits who were elemental spirits of nature. She could receive it back from nature elementals. As she offered her true offspring, which had been stamped into the offspring of Typhon only through an illusion, a remarkable clairvoyant vision dawned upon her. She suddenly noticed that she was still wearing the cow's horns of ancient Egypt in spite of having become a new Isis. And lo and behold, when she had thus become clairvoyant, the power of her clairvoyance summoned, some say, Typhon himself, some say Mercury. And through the power of the clairvoyance of the new Isis, he was obliged to set a crown on her head in the place where once the old crown which Horus had seized from her had been, that is to say, on the spot where she developed the cow horns. But this crown was merely of paper, covered with all sorts of writings of a profound scientific nature. Still it was of paper. And she now had two crowns on her head, the cow horns and the paper crown, embellished with all the wisdom of scientific profundity. Through the strength of her clairvoyance one day, the deep meaning arose in her, as far as the age could reach, of that which is described in St. John's Gospel as the Logos. The Johannine significance of the mystery of Golgotha arose in her. Through the power of the mystery, the power of the cow horns took hold of the paper crown and changed it into the actual gold crown of genuine wisdom. These, then, are the main features that can be given of the new Osiris-Isis legend. I will not, of course, make myself the commentator who explains this legend. It is the other Osiris-Isis legend. But it must set one thing definitely before our souls. Even though the power of action, which is bound up with the new Isis statue, is at first weak, exploring, and tentative, it is to be the starting point of something that is deeply justified in the impulses of the modern age deeply justified in what this age is meant to become and must become. In recent days we have spoken of the word's withdrawal, as it were, from the direct soul experience from which it originally gushed forth as from a spring. We have seen how we live in the age of abstractions, when human words and concepts have only an abstract meaning, when human beings stand far away from reality. The power of the word, the power of the logos, however, must be recaptured. The cow's horns of the ancient Isis must take on quite a different form. It is difficult to speak of these things using modern abstract words. It is better for these things if you try to bring them before the eye of your soul in such imaginations as have been brought before you and to work over these imaginations, allowing them to remain imaginations. It is very important for the new Isis to transform the cow horns through the power of the word which is to be regained through spiritual science, so that even the paper crown covered with writing in the new deeply profound scientific vein will become a genuine golden crown. Quote, now one day someone came before the provisional form of the new Isis statue, and up above on the left a humorous figure had been placed whose mood was a cross between seriousness a serious idea of the world, and, yes, what seemed like a chuckle about the world. And lo and behold, this person was standing in front of the figure at a particularly opportune moment, and the figure became alive and said quite facetiously, Humanity has forgotten it, 
but centuries ago already something was proffered to the new humanity, something about the nature of the new humanity, insofar as this new humanity still masters only the abstract word, the abstract concept, the abstract idea, and is far removed from the reality. This new humanity is limited by words, and is always asking, is it a pumpkin or is it a flask? When it just so happens that a flask has been made from a pumpkin, the new humanity always clings to definitions, always stops short at words. In the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, said the chuckling being, humanity still had some self-knowledge about this peculiar propensity for taking words in a false sense, not relating them to their true reality, but taking them in their most superficial sense. Today, however, humans have forgotten what in those centuries had been put at their disposal in the service of their self-knowledge. Still chuckling, the being then said, What modern humanity should take as the true remedy for its abstract spirit is depicted on a tombstone in Mölln in the Lauenberg district. On this tombstone is drawn an owl, Euler, holding a mirror, Spiegel, and people say that till Eulenspiegel, after he had wandered, performing all sorts of buffoonery and pranks, was buried there. It is said that this Till Eulenspiegel really existed, that he was born in the year 1300, went to Poland, even reached Rome. In Rome he had a wager with the court jesters over all sorts of odds and ends of wisdom and committed all the other Till Eulenspiegelisms, which indeed can be read in the literature about Till Eulenspiegel himself. End quote. Scholars, and scholars are indeed very learned today and take everything with extraordinary gravity and significance, have naturally discovered, oh, they have discovered various things, for example, that Homer didn't really exist. The scholars have naturally also discovered that there never was a Till Eulenspiegel. One of the chief reasons why the actual bones of the actual Till Eulenspiegel, who supposedly was merely the representative of his age, are not supposed to lie beneath the tombstone in Lauenburg, on which is depicted the owl with the looking-glass, was that another tombstone had been found in Belgium, upon which there was likewise an owl with a mirror. Now, these learned ones naturally have said, for it is logical, isn't it? And if they are anything, it is logical. How does it go, go again in Shakespeare? For they are all honorable men, all, 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 logical they all are. Anyway, so they said, if the same sign is found in Lauenburg and in Belgium, then naturally Eulenspiegel never existed at all. Generally in life, if one finds a second time what one has found a first time, one takes this as a reinforcement. But it is logical, is it not, in these things, to take matters so? Well, we say, if I have one franc, then I have one franc. I believe it, so long as I know that I have only a franc. I believe it. But then I get another, and now I have two. Now I believe that I don't have any at all. That is the same logic. This, is in fact, this, in fact, is the logic that is to be found in our science. If I were to recount to you where you find this logic, and how very frequently. But what is the essential point of Eulenspiegel's buffoonery? You can look it up in the book. The main thing in Till Eulenspiegel's buffoonery always consists in the fact that Eulenspiegel is given some sort of commission, and then he performs it purely literally and naturally carries it out in the wrong way. For obviously, if, for instance, to exaggerate somewhat, one were to say to Eulenspiegel, whom I now take as a representative figure, 
bring me a doctor. He would take the word literally and would bring a person who had graduated as doctor from a university. But he might quite possibly bring a person who was, excuse the strong language, a total idiot, going only by the sound of the word. All the fooleries of Till Eulenspiegel are like this. He only goes by the word taken literally. But this makes Till Eulenspiegel the perfect representative of the modern age. Eulenspiegelism is a keynote of our modern times. Words today are far removed from their original source. Ideas are often still farther removed, and people do not notice it, but behave in an Eulenspiegel way to what civilization happens to serve up. Which is what made it possible for Fritz Mautner in a philosophical dictionary to argue that all philosophical concepts are actually merely words, that they no longer have any connection with any kind of reality. People nowadays have no notion how far what they call ideas and even ideals are removed from reality. In other words, humanity doesn't know at all that it has made Eulenspiegel into its patron saint, that Eulenspiegel is still wandering through the lands. One of the fundamental evils of our time rests in the fact that modern humanity flees from Pallas Athena, that is, from the goddess of wisdom, and clings to her symbol, the owl, Euler, and humanity no longer has the least idea of it, but it is true, as I have often shown, that the foundation of external knowledge is merely a reflection, but in a mirror it is ourselves that we see. And so the owl, I mean that the modern scientific profundity, looking into the mirror, into the maya of the world, sees simply its own owlish face. These are the things the being at the left above the modern Isis statue chuckles and snickers over, and many other matters which, out of a certain human courtesy, shall not be mentioned at the moment, but I hope to call forth a feeling that this peculiar representation of human mysteries through the real presence of the Luciferic and the Aramonic spirits, together with the representative of humanity itself, will arouse a state of consciousness among humans which wakes those very impulses in the soul that are necessary for the coming age. In the primordial beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. But the Word has become phrase, it is withdrawn from its origin. The Word sounds and resounds, but its connection with reality is not sought. People don't endeavor to investigate the primary forces of what goes on around them. And one can investigate these fundamental forces in the sense of the present age only if one realizes that the essences which we call Luciferic and Aramonic are really bound up with the microcosmic forces of humanity. And one can understand reality today for the human being living between birth and death only if one can form a few ideas of the other reality, which indeed we have often studied, that lies between death and a new birth. For one reality is only the pole of the other reality, the inverted pole of the other reality. We have mentioned how in ancient times when human beings reached maturity, they not only experienced a change, such as still occurs today in the change of voice or some other part of the bodily organism, but also underwent an alteration of the soul. We have indicated how the ancient Osiris-Isis myth was in fact connected with the disappearance of this alteration of the soul. What used to arise in humanity through these essences, through those essences and forces of which we spoke yesterday, must come again differently 
inasmuch as human beings experience the force of the word, the force of the thought, the force of the idea in a new form. It must not now be something that arises through the forces of nature from the depths of the bodily organization, like the change of voice in the boy, something that embellishes the human being with the power of the animal organization and functions invisibly upon the head as cow-horns. No, there must be a conscious grasping by people of the meaning of the mystery of Golgotha, of the true power of the word. A new element must be drawn into the human consciousness, radically different from the elements which people still enjoy describing today. This new element, however, will be relevant to the social life, to the pedagogy of humanity, when pedagogy or the theory of education comes out of the tragic state in which it exists today. What does the deeply profound Eulenspiegelism, I should say natural scientific profundity, speak of principally when it speaks of the human being? Of what does even a great part of modern poetry speak? It speaks of the physical origin of the human being in connection with physical beings in the line of descent. Fundamentally the so-called modern, the much-renowned modern theory of evolution, is nothing but a conception placing the doctrine of physical descent in the center, for the idea of heredity plays far the greatest role in the theory of evolution. It is a one-sided idea. People are thoroughly satisfied with such one-sidedness, for people think nowadays that in this way one can be very learned. So one can, indeed, and quite arbitrary explanations of this, drawn apparently from deep logic, but in reality from misty allusions to the real thing. Yesterday we saw an example of whole literatures being written because people have lost the connection of a concept with the original experience from which the concept proceeded, the symbol of the cross. A whole literature has been written about it. The cross has been related to everything imaginable. We saw yesterday what it really, what it really is about. The same has been done in regard to many other things, and people think themselves very profound when they do it. I will remind you of one case. Just think how infinitely important many people think themselves to be these days when they believe that they are speaking as we have spoken here today. A fair number of people say, in fact, very frequently, you can read it any moment in the papers, and always with great solemnity, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And with this one thinks one has said something most profound, but one should inquire about the origin of such a saying. It goes back to those times when one had living concepts which indeed still had a connection with what had been undergone and experienced. When one talks today there is little connection, especially between the word and its place of origin. If you want to have a right connection between words and sentences and their origins, then I advise you to read the little book in which Swiss-German proverbs have now been collected. One still finds in these popular proverbs an original harmonizing of what is said with the direct experience. By the letter is meant, as you know, the alphabetical script, in contradistinction to the ancient kind which the imaginative life drew out of the spirit, as we described yesterday. This ancient spirit gave life, and the liveliness of that epoch of human evolution produced imaginative, atavistic clairvoyance. But there was a consciousness that this epoch must in turn be succeeded by another, that the letter must come which would kill the ancient liveliness. 
and now relate that with all that I have said about the actual nature of consciousness in connection with death. For the letter kills, but it also brings the consciousness which must be overcome again through another consciousness, the sort of disdainful rejection that modern journalistic folly attaches to the proverb, the letter kills but the spirit gives life, is not what is meant. Instead, the sentence is connected with impulses of human evolution. It implies approximately. In ancient times, imaginative times, Osiris times, the spirit kept the human soul in a state of dulled liveliness. In later times, the letter called forth consciousness. That is the interpretation of the sentence. That is what it originally meant. And in many instances, just as in this one, people today are very ready with opinions, with arbitrary explanations, because they do not connect anything with them. This does not prove that what the modern, profound scientific method has to say about the idea of heredity is false, only that the other pole must be added when one speaks of heredity. If people point to their childhood and back from childhood to birth, if they ask themselves, what do I carry within me? Then the answer is, what parents and ancestors have carried within them and transmitted to me? There is, however, another way of looking at the human being, which we do not as yet practice which people in the future must practice, and which must be put in the center of pedagogy, the art of education. This is not the looking back at having been younger, but the right consideration of the fact that with every day in life one becomes older. As a matter of fact, modern humanity understands only that one has been young once. It does not understand how to grasp realistically that one gets older with every day. For humans do not know the word that must be added to the word heredity when one sets the becoming older opposite the having been young. If one looks to one's childhood, one speaks of what one has inherited. In the same way, when one looks toward the getting older, one can speak of the other pole. Just as one speaks of the gate of birth, so one can speak of the gate of death. The one question arises, what have we gained from our forefathers by entering this life through the gate of birth? The other question arises, what perhaps do we lose? What becomes different in us through the fact that we are approaching the coming times, that we get older with every day? <clears throat> what is it like when we consciously experience becoming older with every day? That, however, is the demand placed on our age. Humanity must learn to become older consciously with every day. For if humans learn to become older consciously with every day, then this really means a meeting with spiritual beings, just as being born and possessing inherited qualities means a descent from physical beings. I will speak next of the way these things are connected, of that important inner impulse which must draw near the human soul if the soul is to find what is so necessary for the future what alone can round out and complete the one-sided teachings of natural science. Then you will see why the new Isis myth can stand beside the old Osiris Isis myth, while both, why both together are necessary for the humanity of today, why other words must be combined with the words which resound from the statue of Isis at Sais in ancient Egypt, I am the all, I am the past, the present, the future, no mortal has lifted my veil. Other words must sound into these. They may no longer echo one-sidedly into the human soul today, but in addition must resound the words, I am human, 
I am the past, the present, and the future. Every mortal should lift my veil. Today I have set before you more riddles than solutions. We will, however, speak of them further, and the riddles will then be solved in manifold ways. The end of Lecture 3